and you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20, it's page 292 in the, the Red Pew Bibles. We're going to continue this Walking the Walk series. Uh, the title comes from this verse here at the bottom of the slide that's found in 1 Kings uh, chapter 9. As for you, this is, this is God speaking to Solomon, David's son, as for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as your father David did. And so hence the reason for this series looking at David's story uh, is that we've, we've called it Walking the Walk. And last week, if you were here, we, we left David uh, running for his life. And if you're visiting this evening or you've missed the first few weeks of this series, let me really quickly fill in the, the, the story so far. David is the eighth uh, and the youngest son of Jesse. He has been anointed by Samuel to become the next king of Israel, uh, to replace Saul, who for various reasons has been rejected by God. But David is going to have to wait to become king. And as it turns out, and for those of you who know the bigger story, he actually ends up having to wait for years, years and years before he climbs onto the throne and takes up his position. But one of the reasons that, that David uh, was chosen was because God looked past what everybody else saw. Human beings have always had this tendency to focus on outward appearance, whereas God is far more interested in the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, to repeat that phrase yet again. Uh, so David is, is on this particular career path. But as he waits, and as I say, it turns out for years, but as he waits, he finds himself having to navigate some major twists and turns and highs and lows. And one of the, the most memorable is, is the infamous showdown with the Philistine giant called Goliath. And two weeks ago, as, as Drew looked at that incident, he encouraged us and provoked us to consider how we actually see things. Do we approach life and the challenges of life from a human or from a godly perspective? How do, you, how do you see things? Are you gripped by fear or fueled by faith? And whenever we come up against big things, difficult, seemingly impossible things in our lives, do we attempt to come at them in our own strength or do we come at them in the name of the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai? David, and this is just retracing our steps, David then, after that incident, moves in with the current king. Saul takes him in to live with the family. And David strikes up a really good and close friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And initially, as we said last week, everything looks great. It's, good. it's a good day. These are good days. But then last week we discovered and we made the point that it's impossible. It's not possible to control the way others see us and react to us. That no matter what you do, some people are never going to like you. Or they may like you initially, but then for whatever reason go off you. And then they not only go off you, but in certain situations, they then start making life really difficult for you. And that was 
David's experience with Saul. And it was really hard for David to take this. Why? Because David had done nothing wrong. In fact, if anything, David had done everything right. And yet Saul goes off him. Even though at one time he loved him, we read. And over the course of then a couple of chapters that we looked at last Sunday night, 1 Samuel 18 and 19, David's relationship with the king dramatically breaks down. Saul is consumed by anger and jealousy. And he ends up trying to kill David on more than one occasion. And David eventually, with the help of his wife, has to run for his life. And here's where we left it last week. But he he makes his way to a place called Ramah, where he meets up again with the person who anointed him to be king, Samuel. But unfortunately, Saul tracks him down and comes after him. And so what David does is he makes his way back to Jonathan, which when you think about it is really strange. Because he makes his way back to Jonathan, back to the palace where, guess who else is going to make their way back to? Saul the king. So why did he go back there? Well, let's have a look at why. Beginning of chapter 20. Just one other comment from last week. Before we move on, there was a phrase that that kept coming up in chapter 18. And and unless we note this phrase and recognize this fact, we, we will actually miss a major aspect of the entire story. Here's the phrase, the Lord was with him. It appears three times in chapter 18. The Lord was with David. And not only was this true, but David knew it. And so even though he found himself in trouble, real, tangible, life-threatening, hard-to-imagine trouble, he was able to pen these words and pray these words. You are my fortress. You are my refuge in, not from, in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. God, you are my fortress my God on whom I can rely. David wrote this psalm. If you were here last Sunday night, you know this. David wrote this psalm as Saul's assassination squad were on their way to kill him. David's commitment to and his trust in God, even when he was staring down the barrel of a gun, was amazing. And I suppose the question I just want to ask tonight as we start this is, are you walking that kind of walk? That in the midst of mess, And that's where some of you find yourselves this evening. Are you able to say this? God, you're you're my fortress. You are my strength, not from trouble, but in trouble. I can rely on you, God. That's hard. And that's hard for some people here tonight. I know that. And so I don't say that lightly. Chapter 20 then begins. And all I'm going to do, and part of what this series is about, is retelling David's story and kind of just telling it, working our way through it, and and drawing stuff out of it. So chapter 20 begins with David asking, and have a look at this in verse 1. David asks Jonathan three questions. Here they are. What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin against your father that he's trying to take my life? Those are great questions, given what's going on. And David is at a complete loss to know what he's done wrong. At a complete loss. Why is Saul so intent on eliminating him? And maybe David is hoping that if he can discover the reason for Saul's hostility, he can get his head around it, he can address it, 
and then see if he can sort it out. And that's perfectly understandable. And sometimes, you know, it's good and it's wise to ask someone else who's close to your situation for their take on it. If, If you're having problems within a relationship and you don't know what you've done wrong and you don't know why this person has turned against you, why they have it in for you, Sometimes it's good to just go and ask somebody else who's close to the situation to say, what, what do you see? What, what do you see going on here? Is there, am I missing something? Am I, am I too blinkered to see an obvious problem that needs to be addressed? So David seeks his friend's advice. But Jonathan's reply is odd. Look at verse 2. Never. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why should he hide this from me? It isn't so. Now, if you have a Bible, look at the first verse of chapter 19, the chapter before. Because what we read here is, Saul told his son Jonathan and all his attendants to kill David. So how come now Jonathan saying, it isn't so? Has Jonathan conveniently forgot that? Was he naive? Is he in denial? Is he trying to protect his friend, calm him down? Was this wishful thinking? Or was he himself at a complete loss regarding the situation and the behavior of his dad? Who knows? Who knows? But David quickly clarifies the reality of the situation to his friend. Look at the end of verse 4. David says it very explicitly. Look, there is but a step between me and death. I am this close, Jonathan, to being killed by your dad. And at that point, it seems the lights come on. And Jonathan accepts that there is a serious issue. And and he promises to do whatever David wants him to do. Because you see, this is someone who's totally committed to their friend. Willing to do whatever it's going to take to protect him. Which, as it turns out, involves being part of a plan to suss out Saul's present state of mind regarding David. Verses 5 to 7. Have a look at this. It's fascinating. It's a brilliant story. But David is due to attend a feast the next day. So the king has now come back. The one who has been out to kill him has chased him to Ramah. But David has escaped. But David has escaped back to the palace. And now Saul's back at the palace. And they're due to have a meal together and be at a feast together the next day. But here's David's plan. He's not going to show up. Instead, he's going to hide in a field. And here's the plan. If Saul misses David and comments on his absence at the table, Jonathan is to make up a story. Okay? In other words, Jonathan's to to lie for David. And he's got to tell the king, listen, David has had to head back home to Bethlehem to be part of an anniversary family reunion and worship service. So here's the plan. 
If Saul responds positively to that, if he says, that's no problem, then David's safe. That's the saying. Whereas if Saul loses it and becomes angry, well, then it's pretty obvious that Saul is still intent on taking David's life and that he hasn't changed his mind at all. So that's the plan that Jonathan and David hatch. But there's a slight twist. Look at this in verse 8. Because David must have been slightly nervous that whenever tomorrow comes and whenever the heat is on at that table, that Jonathan might be tempted to change his mind and side with his dad. And so here's the bit. David reminds Jonathan of the covenant that he invited David into before the Lord. See, back in chapter 18, if you were here last week, you will know this, that Jonathan entered into a covenant with David. And so in these moments, David turns to and he looks to and he depends on the one person who has made a covenant with him. Why? Because he knows, David knows that as a result of Jonathan having made a covenant with him, that he's going to react and deal with him in a very particular way. Look at verse 8. As for you, Jonathan, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into covenant with you before the Lord. And that term, show kindness, I've highlighted it there on the screen. That term, show kindness, is crucial. Because it gets translated, and maybe you have a different translation of God's word before you, but it gets translated as faithful love. Show faithful love or show loving kindness. But it carries this idea of someone showing or demonstrating love and compassion and affection. And it includes loyalty and reliability and faithfulness. And so we're not just talking about love, we're talking about loyal love. We're not just talking about kindness, we're talking about dependable kindness. We're not just talking about affection, we're talking about committed affection. And here, based on Jonathan's covenant with David, David reaches out and depends on this person's devoted love to him. And in the midst of this story, and as we read this story, and as we read back into this story, and for those who read this story at the time, they would appreciate the bigger story. And this is what I want us to appreciate this evening. That we have a God who's made a covenant with us. We have a covenant-making God who by nature is, and here is the nature of the one who's made a covenant with us. And this is, this is a phrase that appears in God's word time and time again. It appears in Exodus 34. Actually, Brian, if you were here this morning, read it from Joel. It appears in Psalm 87. But this is the nature of our covenant-making God. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so we can not only look to him, not only depend on him to show us loyal love and dependable kindness, but that wherever we find ourselves and whenever we find ourselves like David in the midst of confusion and trouble, we can take ourselves as David did to the one person who has made a covenant with us, knowing 
that when we do, we're going to receive compassion and grace and a God who's slow to anger and who abounds in love towards us and is faithful to us. The one person who has made a covenant with us, a new covenant in his blood, as we just, or as Sarah read for us a moment ago as we sat around this table. In David's disintegrating world, there was yet one space of sanity, one refuge still intact, and that was Jonathan, because there was covenant between them. There was kindness in a raw world. And if we take nothing else from this evening, let's remember that whatever is going on in our world, and wherever we find ourselves at at the moment, we need to look to and keep depending on the one who's made a covenant with us. Well, back to the story. Jonathan then invites David out to the field for a further conversation. Now, we're not at the next day yet. We're not at the feast, the new moon festival. Jonathan invites David out for another conversation in the field about the plan tomorrow. He wants a bit of clarification. If you jump ahead down to verses 18 to 23, Jonathan then shares how he's going to let David know the outcome of what happens at the feast. And the way it's going to work is Jonathan's going to come out while David's hiding behind a rock in this field. Jonathan's going to come out with a young boy and he's going to fire arrows. Going to go out for a bit of target practice. And if the arrows kind of fall before David, then that says, hey, do you know something? Everything's all right. You're okay to come back in. You're safe. But if the arrows fall beyond David, then that's a sign that he needs to run for his life. So the plan's in place. Everybody knows what they're going to do, how it's going to work. And so the next day, David hides in the field. Saul sits down to eat. It's all in here. It's brilliant. And it says in the text that, that Saul sits at his usual place. And eventually, he notices that David's seat's empty. Now, it turns out that the feast doesn't just last a few hours. This is one of these feasts that goes on until the next day. And so on day one of the feast, Saul says nothing about David's absence. Because he assumes, according to the text, that David is somehow ritually unclean. And that's why he hasn't come to dinner. That's why he hasn't turned up. But the next day, when Saul notices David's seat's empty, his suspicions are aroused. And so he asked Jonathan, Jonathan, probably because he's aware of just how close his son and David are, why is the son of Jesse not here? And it's interesting that, that Saul still can't bring himself to say his name. It's the son of Jesse. Where is he? Jonathan then spins the yarn. He actually adds to it, if you notice. And as a result... What does Saul do? Hits the roof. Only now his anger is directed not towards David, but also towards his own son. The fact is Jonathan has enraged the king so much. And in his fury, 
Saul opens his mouth and launches a personal attack on his own son. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And irrespective of Jonathan's mom's character, that's a shocking thing to say. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You see, whenever anger and jealousy, and we we kind of thought a wee bit about this, whenever anger and jealousy are left unchecked, we eventually lash out. And often, most of the damage we do is verbal. And we often end up hurting the people closest to us. We say things that are extreme when anger and jealousy are left unchecked. Whenever they're allowed to fester, we say things that are hurtful. And once those words are out there, they're like the toothpaste that's squeezed out of the tube. They're virtually impossible to put back in. And then if you're not careful at that point, and don't pull back, the downward spiral's inevitable. And so Saul orders his son to send someone to get David who hasn't turned up because he is going to die. And Jonathan's commitment and devoted love and loyalty to David is unquestionable at this point because he actually challenges his dad. He actually challenges the king, and this is serious. Why should he die? Now we're back to the start of the chapter. Now we're back to the question David asked of, of Jonathan. What have I done wrong? Why is your dad intent on killing me? Jonathan's taken up that question and is asking it to the person involved. Why should he die? What has he done wrong? And to repeat something we said last week, bad thoughts, bad attitudes often lead to bad actions because what does Saul do? He picks up his spear. Only this time he doesn't try to pin David to the wall. He tries to kill his own son. The downward spiral going to take out my boy bad thoughts bad attitudes anger jealousy left unchecked will eventually spill out next morning jonathan avoided being pinned to the wall but jonathan now knows that not only does his own life hang in the balance but his best friend's life definitely does and so next morning jonathan heads out to the field with the bow, with the arrow, with the boy. And he shoots the arrows. And he sends the boy to get them and shouts, Is the arrow not beyond you? The signal. And David realizes all his fears have come true. He is going to be killed if he hangs around. And so he runs. Or not just yet. Because Jonathan calls the boy back sends him into the palace and Jonathan and David have one last moment together for now. It actually turns out this is their penultimate moment together. And it's painful for both of them. They're good friends, really close friends. Jonathan said that he loves David as he loves himself. And David, if you look at the story, is, is the more upset at the two at this point. He cries the most, it says. And they part company. And David heads in one direction. And this is a slight mystery to me in the, in the story. Is, is the, why does Jonathan not run with him? Why does he not run with him? Why does Jonathan go back to a dad who's just tried to kill him? Loyalty? Commitment? Can't have been an easy choice to make 
He must have been tempted to run. But for now, Jonathan has done whatever it took and everything possible to protect his friend and remain true to his covenant of loving kindness with David. But the cost has been high. And as a result, as you come to the end of this chapter, he says something to David that must have meant the world. Verse 42, have a look at this. David, go in peace. Now, how can that? How can that be? Surely life on the run is anything but peaceful. But the point is, between David and Jonathan, there is peace. Why? The covenant has established that. And so although everything else might seem in a state of flux and confusion, there's safety here. And that peace means the world to David. And as we come to the end of this evening, I want to remind us that, that as Christians, we go in peace from this building. Not because everything around us is peaceful. I, I have no idea what you're heading into this week. Some of you have a fair idea. Some of you dread the week ahead. But as you look at it, it's going to be anything but peaceful. But because one who is greater than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to us at a phenomenally high cost, back to what Sarah said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That via his death on a cross, Jesus has established a new covenant with us, which means... And in a world of turmoil, we can know peace. True peace. Real peace. Lasting peace. Ultimate peace. And it is this covenant bond of that unforsaking friend that speaks peace into our disappointments, into the dangers we face. And even into the disasters that will cross our paths. And so we, those who are in relationship with this covenant God, can go in peace into another week. Let's pray together. God, you, you have made a new covenant with us, a new agreement with us in Christ's blood. And because you are compassionate and you're gracious and you're slow to anger, you're abounding in love and faithfulness, we can depend on you. That no matter what is going on in our world, you are that fortress, you are that refuge in trouble. And so like David, we look to the one place. We keep going back to the one place where we know there is safety. And that is in relationship with you. And so God, I do pray particularly for those here this evening who are coming out of a difficult week 
and who are unsure of what the week ahead looks like. But God, in the midst of that, like David, feeling on the run for their lives, they will know there is one on whom they can depend and can run to. May each one of us go in peace. In Jesus' name, amen.